Today we begin a mini three-part series within his broader series on the church, uh, having to do with vision. And I've been uh, selected to bat lead off this morning, and, and uh, by God's grace, um, we'll hear from the Lord. It was on uh, April 8th, 1630, almost 389 years ago, on board the ship Arbella, which was only two days uh, out from having departed from Southampton in England, an English lawyer named John Winthrop delivered a sermon entitled, A Model of Christian Charity. The sermon was to the folks who were on his ship, and they were the first colonists en route to this place to establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Winthrop, perhaps that name is familiar to you, he was to become the first, he was to be the first governor of Massachusetts. And he delivered this sermon, he may have delivered it more than once, but we know for certain it was on that day on the ship. He used Jesus' language from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, when he told his hearers the most famous line from this sermon, he said, For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Now what John Winthrop was doing was setting out a vision for those first settlers on what was no doubt the most thrilling, the most challenging adventure of their lives and dangerous to set across the ocean to a place they had never seen. And the language of that vision, using those, those words, a city upon a hill, that's been used by politicians ever since <laughs> throughout American history to call people back over and over again to a sense of responsibility that, like we might say, for, that, for those to whom much is given, much is required. I think the most famous one was uh, John F. Kennedy used it uh, speaking here in Boston after he had been elected in 1960. But what Winthrop was doing was charting a vision. These people were doing something remarkable. But they needed to know a direction, not just spatially, that they were headed from, you know, they were headed west across the ocean from the safety of England to the unknown, relative unknown of New England. But what were they to do? How were they to relate? What was to be their priority? What were their goals? What was their ambition? What was the thing that they were going to be pursuing individually and collectively? What was to mark their life together? What was the vision for that place that at that point only existed on a map? Massachusetts. Well, I love thinking about this this sermon from time to time for a couple of reasons. One, it is remarkable in its place in American history, but also because John Winthrop is my ninth great-grandfather. And so this morning, I'm standing before you as a great-grandson of this first governor of Massachusetts, but more importantly, I'm standing before you as a fellow follower of Jesus Christ to remind you that we, the people of God, his church, the followers of Jesus, We, the church, are to be a people with a vision. It's a unique vision 
for how we are to be the body of Christ, how we are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in the world today and on Cape Ann today. It's not a vision for a, a political or a social contract. It's, it's a vision regarding the kingdom of God in our midst and how we are to extend that kingdom by the work of God that he does through us and our place in that purpose. Well, this is a vision that we don't concoct on our own. It's a vision that we derive from God's revelation to us. And so this morning, I invite you to turn then to that place in his revelation known as the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the fruit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Let's pray. Father, we love to recite your words, to hear them spill over our ears, to, to trip from our tongues. But as much as we love to hear your word, we know that you love to hear it even more. And so as we consider your word this morning, we ask, Father, that by your spirit, you would enable us not only to hear it rightly, but for, that I might speak it rightly. We rest upon the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning to instruct us, to grow us, to challenge us, to change us, to open our hearts, to give us the ability to love you and to love one another and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we desire to hear from you this morning. And insofar as I am able, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. And this we pray in the name of the Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, this, uh, this passage in Isaiah is one that I trust is familiar to you. You recognize, of course, that much of, these, uh, much of this language speaks about Jesus. And this is the kind of thing we maybe would read often at Christmas time in the Advent season as we're thinking about the, the first coming of Christ and all the promises that were set out about him throughout the ages and in, the, in, the, in the history of Israel. This is a familiar passage to us, but let's not let the fact that it's familiar to us um, prevent us from missing something critical and glorious this morning. For this is a word of promise in the midst of a word of warning and judgment. And that is what we find beginning back in chapter 10 of Isaiah's prophecy. For you see, God tells Isaiah to speak this word to his people and to, to also speak uh, in, in a way that reveals kind of uh, what's going on behind the curtain of history. For you see, God had been using a nation to the north, the Assyrians, and his intention was to use them to discipline his people Israel, to call them, them back to himself because they had wandered. Israel had rebelled, and so God raised up the Assyrians as the rod of my anger, he says in chapter 10, verse 5, as the club of my wrath. So God had dispatched Assyria as an instrument of discipline for his people, Israel, but the Assyrians intended to use this power that God had given them to destroy many nations, not to be used in a way that God intended for the benefit and the blessing of his people. So that Assyria, when given this power, boasted to themselves and to all the nations around them when they said, by the strength of my hand I have done this. Isaiah relates in chapter 10, verse 13. To which God replies, does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Clearly the answer is no. But that is nonetheless the attitude of this people. And so God will bring judgment on them. And he says in verse 19 of chapter 10 in Isaiah, the remaining trees of his forests, that's Assyria's forests, will be so few that a child could write them down. Uh, Think about how many that might be. You know, maybe up to 10, as many as you can count on your fingers. That's about all that's going to be left. And in verses 33 and 34, the closing verses of chapter 10, we see the Lord speak this through Isaiah. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. What's being presented here is a picture of what God intends to do to this nation, which is likened to a mighty forest, in part because their land was filled with mighty forests. And that glory of that mighty that, that, that mighty stand of, of trees is going to be cut down, laid low. It would be made a wasteland, a scene of destruction, of ancient forest of mighty cedars of Lebanon, reduced to stubble. But in the midst of that wasteland, a promise, a wonderful promise. A glorious promise, a promise that brings life to us, a promise that says this, a shoot will come up 
from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. You get the picture? This forest clear-cut. Maybe you've been, you've traveled up in the North, into Maine or New Hampshire or some of those places, and you see, you've seen clear-cutting done on the side of a mountain where they'll just take it right out. And uh, there's nothing left, really, at all. That's the picture. But for as far as the eye can see, and the Lord God himself will do this to this people. But out of that wasteland, one stump will provide life. A shoot will come up from the stump of the promise of a Messiah from the line of David, the son of Jesse. So in this rotting timber, in this scorched earth picture, from one stump comes life. Think about it. may appear small at first, and for a time it may struggle, but it will grow. And it will reach its fulfillment one day. And that fulfillment, Isaiah speaks to us in verse 9. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now there's, there's a great distance between those two points on the spectrum. When there's nothing there, but yet a shoot will come from the stump. Till that day, sometime, when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, this morning, my purpose and our purpose together is to consider what we're to do about this. Who are we as the church of of Jesus Christ, as the church here gathered in Lanesville? We are to be a people with a vision. And I would suggest this, first of all, and it flows very nicely from the the selections that we sang uh, just a moment ago in our time of singing. By, By far, we are first of all, most foundationally, as God's people, we are to be a people with a vision for God's glory. For God's glory. This is absolutely foundational. What, what, we, what we might think of for, for this life of this church is not about ourselves, right? It's not even for our children or their children. Our vision for the direction in which we seek to go together as God's people here is for God's glory. What we choose to do, what we choose not to do, what we choose to make a priority, what we choose to, to, to lower in, in priority is all about what makes God look the best, What makes him look great and glorious in the world? Not that he needs our help, right? But nonetheless, what is our focus? What is our purpose? We are to be a people after God's own heart. A heart which God expresses elsewhere, and none for me, none more powerfully than later in Isaiah's prophecy in uh, verses 9 to 11 of chapter 48. When God says this through the prophet Isaiah, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his own glory. And so should we be when all around us we see 
God's glory insulted, diminished, denigrated. Think about how God's glory is treated around us. And maybe even within our, in, in our own lives from time to time. God's glory in a picture of marriage. An illustration of his love for his people. It's dragged through the mud as it is scorned, abandoned, redefined. How about God's glory in the love of families that's shattered as marriages dissolve so quickly in our day and children are abused and abandoned? What does that do for God's glory when that happens? How about God's glory in the image that he has placed within us, the imago dei of human life? It's it's trashed as unborn children are aborted by the millions and children and young adults are enslaved and trafficked for sexual exploitation. What does that do to God's glory? How about God's glory in our culture as human beings when it's inverted as people celebrate those things that God abhors and denigrate what God honors? What does God's glory suffer in that? How about his glory among the nations when it's ridiculed as men and women in positions of authority and in leadership, roles that are allotted to them by God They use their power in pursuit of greed and avarice and self-exaltation instead of the benefit of those under their care. What does that do to God's glory? How about God's glory in the world when it's under attack as his people, the church, are oppressed, persecuted, and martyred for their obedience to Jesus? What does that do to God's glory? How about God's glory in the church? And how it's made a mockery when we, who are to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, often refuse to crucify our sinful attitudes, our sinful actions, and instead we pursue our own amusements. What does that do to God's glory? Now, as I said these things, were your hackles being raised? Were you starting to get a little angry? Were you starting to become uncomfortable? Does it bother you to know that God's glory is trampled on in the world? That it's often trampled on in your world, in your life? And what will we do about that? What are we to do? Well, does it not seem that at times we live in a period in history where the glory of God appears at a low ebb in our midst? That we could say of the church that we are like the child named Ichabod, a name signifying that the glory has departed from Israel. At times, does it not seem that that is an accurate depiction of our day? Well, in the midst of that, there is a promise. There is a promise. And that promise, promise must fill our vision for God's glory in the world. And it is a vision which is there in Isaiah chapter 11, but I like it even better in Habakkuk 2.14, which we sang last week and which we have said, we have spoken to each other, and it's on the top of your bulletins this week. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise that we should be captivated by that we should be entranced by, that we should be hungry and passionate to see happen, not someday in the distant future, but now, in our lifetimes. Wouldn't that be awesome 
if in our lifetimes the, the glory of God was known to such a degree that we could say it's like the waters covering the sea. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's the vision that ought to fill our minds. It is this vision for God's glory that should compel us also to invite other people to join us in tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, to enter into this experience that we enjoy of the glory of God now. Now, as we're going through this, uh, this little series the next couple of weeks, uh, uh, next week Dan will preach, and then the following week uh, Brother Floyd will, will finish this and then move on into his further series. But one of the things you're going to hear, I trust, uh, a few times over and over again, is mention of three words. Three words that have been a very intentional part of the life of this church. Three words that I I hope you're going to get to know a little bit better. You're going to be able to understand a little bit better. You're going to be able to uh, put them into place and how it might uh, direct your own thinking and your own decisions in life. And those words are invite, grow, send. We ought to be the kind of people who want to invite people to enjoy the glory of God. Behold the glory of God as it is in his Son, Jesus Christ. And as it, as, as it is lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit through a bunch of chumps like us, right? I mean, the, the transformation that, that, that happens to a human life when Jesus gets a hold of him, when the Holy Spirit grabs that heart, that brings glory to God. And that's what we ought to invite people to. So invite. And let this be a sentence perhaps that might be helpful for you. Inviting is entreating believers in Jesus and non-believers alike to actively participate in and experience the reconciliation, rest, and comfort of the gospel. Now it's that gospel that I suggest would become the second essential part of our vision. If we are going to be a people as a church with a vision for the glory of God, that vision must be a gospel vision. That vision must be centered, rooted, built upon the foundation of the gospel of new life in Jesus Christ. And our text this morning in Isaiah 11 indicates that the knowledge of the Lord really has to precede the establishment of the kind of peace that is pictured in in the middle of that passage. Those are wonderful words that we read in Isaiah 11, right? I could even hear, as I was reading them, I could hear some of you kind of going, mm-hmm, amen, you know, like, bring it on. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, on and on. The cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together, the, the lion will eat straw like the ox, all that. That's a picture of peace, like we have never experienced. Is that something that we yearn for? Is that the kind of peace that we yearn for? Really, the way Isaiah's vision and his prophecy unfolds here, God seems to be saying to us that the degree to which the knowledge of his kingdom and his person and his power covers the earth earth is the degree to which peace will exist on the earth. And it's not going to exist outside of that knowledge. Now, some of 
many may, may interpret this, this verse as applying to a period in time and space only in the distant future when Jesus returns. Some have and maybe continue to see it that way. That that kind of peace can't happen until Jesus returns. Well, I'm not so sure. And, and maybe, maybe the picture is, is not something we want to look for literally, like a child playing with a viper. Okay? It's, it's using figurative language to talk about the degree to which the peace of the gospel can transform the lives of people and cultures and nations and families. Look at verse 10. Then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. I'm not, I'm not buying that that's only after Jesus returns. The influence, certainly, of the gospel has ebbed and flowed in the last 2,000 years. And I'll admit this idea of the gospel uh, being a, a source and an, and an instrument of peace in the world sometimes has been marred by the history of the church itself, which has been full of abuse. And peace has always been elusive, it seems. But this is not talking just about the knowledge about God. This is about knowing God. Knowing him and that intimate experience of his presence, his glory as it's revealed in Jesus Christ. The knowledge that's spoken of in Jeremiah chapter 31 and then in the, in the biggest uh, Old Testament um, text carried over in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8. I love this. I love this. Hebrews chapter 8. Hear this from, I, from Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For all shall know him. All shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's a picture of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, of which we are a part right now. And that is the truth in our lives, is it not? How many of you look at your life now in Christ and realize that there is a peace that surpasses understanding like you wouldn't believe that's in your life? And it's only because of the gospel and the power of the transformation that comes by the Holy Spirit working in you. Is there anyone who would want to say, I don't know, amen? Okay. I mean, is that not true of us, right? Our lives are marked by remarkable peace. Now, that doesn't mean we're free from trouble and issues and, tr and problems and conflicts and, you know, relationship issues and all the things that still cloud our lives because sin is still a part of who we are, unfortunately. But this gospel vision of peace built into the life of individual people, families, Communities, nations, is not something that we need to just say, well, someday it'll happen, but not until Jesus comes back. No. 
A gospel vision is one that is completely convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone is able to answer the questions of a hurting world. And that is because we have experienced ourselves. This gospel vision will certainly be challenged in the midst of a culture that's repulsed by the idea of of the exclusive nature and power of salvation in Christ that the Bible claims and that we proclaim as well. They'll also scoff at the idea for the need for a Savior at all. But our gospel vision should compel us to want to not only invite others, but to grow. Hear this helpful definition for this word, grow. As we would seek to intentionally disciple the followers of Jesus, both individually and corporately, for the purpose of spiritual depth and maturity. This occurs through devotion to Scripture and prayer, through service to the body of Christ and to the world, and through a deep love to and fellowship with God and each other. So the vision that we would have as the people of God this morning should be certainly, number one, rooted in a passion for God's glory. We want to see God made to look really good because he is really good. There's nothing better. There's no one more glorious than he. But it is going to happen because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power that resides in that transforming message. It's not us. It's not our, it's not our efforts. It's this, the gospel itself, what it will do. But there's a third leg, I guess you could say, a third thing that to think about. Our vision as a people of God here should also be a revival vision, a vision that looks for revival. And look at verse 10 again. Then it will come about in that day, in Isaiah 11, verse 10, that the nations will return, will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. I would really love to see that happen in my lifetime. And not just in some form of sort of an end times prophetic fulfillment like, yeah, I'd love for Jesus to come back in my lifetime, but if he doesn't, I'd still like to see this happen. I'd like to see the nations return and bring praise to Jesus. This is a vision that yearns for the fulfillment of what Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 11, where he says this, and as he looked as he looked down the, the tunnel of history and he thought about what is it that made, made him keep going? What was it that he wanted to see happen? He says this, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. This is Romans chapter 11. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That was a promise that Paul hung on to. This was something that he, that was like, it was the engine, that was the fuel in his engine that kept driving him day after day after day. What was he looking for? He was looking for the, his brethren to accept Jesus as his Messiah. 
But he realized that God had sort of placed a veil over their hearts. They couldn't understand Moses for the time being. And, and there was a purpose for that. It was so that Gentiles would come. And there would be a fullness of the Gentiles. And then, when they are all swooped in, then all Israel will believe. There will be, from, what, from I think what Paul says here, there is to be expected times of refreshing, times of incredible visitation by the Holy Spirit, times of revival, when the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in, when Jews, by the thousands, by the millions, all of a sudden have the scales fall off their eyes and say, oh, that's our Messiah. He's been here all along. Thirty years ago, I read a little book that changed my own personal vision for revival. The book is called The Puritan Hope. And it uh, challenged my assumption, as I had been taught, that for a Christian, the expected trajectory of history is down. Right? Things are only going to get worse. Things are just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And we're just going to be like hanging on by the, just, just by one fingernail. And then Jesus will come. That's sort of been, that's been, uh, uh, that's been taught in the church. That's what I was taught. Now, it may have come throughout the 20th century because at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a uh, sort of a theological liberalism that believed in sort of this upward progress of man and um, the, uh, the promise of a better world. Those kinds of things were shattered by two world wars, countless genocides, when it was clear that things weren't just, that Shangri-La wasn't happening. But the church used that and, and saw that and responded, that, and then that kind of maybe colored the way they understood biblical prophecy and said, oh, well, whew, things are really going to get bad. We better, like, put your seatbelts on, folks. Buckle up, because it's just going to be a rough ride. And we better pray that Jesus comes back really soon, because we may not make it. That worldview was mine until I read this little book, which pointed out that there was an older view, a view before the 20th century that was shared by many biblical, solid biblical Christians who read the scriptures and that although they saw that there is never a promise that all things will be restored until Jesus returns, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ will prevail. And God will send remarkable periods of refreshing. And that the church may have hope that the promise of Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that that is something that we might even trust we could see in our lifetime. We could see it happen in the world. Do you, I don't know, am, am I talking like just to myself? or I mean, is that... Is, is that something that we were willing to believe? It seems kind of risky, doesn't it? That Jesus could, that, that, the, that Jesus may delay, but God's gospel will be glorious in the world even before Jesus comes. That the Spirit of God has the capability and could very well just flood the world with his presence. 
Did you know, if you study the history of missions, that the great mission, missionary movement that sort of began a resurg, uh, re, the resurgence of that in the 17th and 18th centuries was motivated by this conviction, that there, will, there is coming a day when the glory of God will cover this earth like the waters cover the sea, but we better get busy because God intends for us to be a part of that. So let's get moving. Let's not sit here on our rear ends and wherever we are. Let's go to places. And this was exactly the motivation why churches in little churches in little hamlets in England and Scotland and Wales and other places, why they sent people off to the far corners of the world. And so we too, as a people with a vision, we invite people to, to join with us in esteeming the glory of God. We invite them to grow under the transforming power of the gospel of God. But we also send people. And we send people because we desire to see, we, we desire to see God's glory cover the earth. We desire to see revival. Sending equipping and encouraging the body of Christ to bear witness to Jesus everywhere they go through faithful living, sacrificial service, and effective communication of the gospel so that the church's great commission will be accomplished and the world brought from darkness to light. These are the three words that, if you haven't already heard them, you're going to continue. You're going to hear them more and more. And maybe you'll, now you'll notice them in places. Invite, grow, send. That's, that's our vision for what we are and why God has placed us here. So in the next two weeks, Dan and Floyd will preach, from I think, from this same text and build on this even more. But what is our vision as a local church? We're meeting, as you may have been aware, some of us uh, leaders in leadership with a fellow who's, a, who's coaching us through thinking these things. And he shared something uh, when we met with him in late January that I just want to use in closing. He, he encouraged us to think of vision as literally using that word vision, like seeing. What, what are we looking for? What do we see? He said, we need to look around. Now he, he said he did them in a different order. I'm putting them in an order that seems to to flow with what I've been saying here. We need to look around us. And as we do, we invite people to join us. That's part of our vision. Let's stop and look around. What's going on? But we also look back. We honor what God has done in our past, but this causes us to grow as we learn of God's faithfulness in the scriptures and in church history and in our own church's history. But then we also look forward. Part of looking forward is sending each other out into the world every week. We look forward to what's God going to do this week through us? Who might we, who might we be a blessing to? Who, to whom might we minister? Or who might we send more literally to, a, to another place to serve in God's kingdom? But as we're doing these things, three things, we always need to be looking up because we depend on God and his spirit. So as we do these things, I trust that we will indeed be a people who have a vision for God's glory, a vision that's focused on the gospel, and a vision for revival. And we call out to God in his power 
to make it so in our lives for his glory. Let's pray.